Okay, then, let's go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time, shall we? Father, thank you that, as always, uh, the time that we have here uh, every week to worship you, that's a blessing that we look forward to, to come here and meet with our King. And uh, we pray now that as uh, we talk about Him in His humanity, what He was like, I pray that you would press this truth upon our hearts, the need uh, to imitate that, to imitate what it is that we learn uh, here today. In Jesus, our King's name, we pray. Amen. Well, there are, of course, uh, many people in this world that are imitated by others, whether it be movie stars or rock stars or uh, athletes, uh, people tend to want to imitate somebody else. And that's by design. That's something that God has worked into us or into our humanity. Hence the reason we are called image bearers. Another way of putting that would be image imitators. And the specific person that we as Christians are called or commanded to imitate is the person of Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, to do that requires that we first understand uh, who he was in his humanity, and that is what we've been looking at uh, for the past several weeks, and I want to continue and, as I said, finish our study on that here today. Uh, because we do have a lot of material to get through, I'm just going to skip right to the new material. You have the first eight points in front of you, and uh, if you were not here for uh, our discussion of those, I would encourage you to uh, go online and uh, listen to the sermons uh, for those first eight points. Again, right now, we're just going to skip all the way down uh, to the new material to point number nine. So starting there, as a human, King Jesus was not an accurate reflection, was not an accurate reflection of how he felt. He was not an accurate reflection of how he felt. What determines what the majority of people do is how they feel. What determines what the majority of people do is how they feel. At least one study has concluded uh, that number to be upwards of 90% of what they do. 90% of what most human beings do is determined by how they feel. And yet for Jesus, it was just the opposite. Jesus was not controlled by his feelings. What he chose to do or not do was not determined by how he felt. And I think the best example of this uh, comes again for, uh, from uh, the Garden of Gethsemane account. Uh, this time reading from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 and they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane, 
And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. According to Luke's version of this that we saw last week, that included troubled to the point of sweating drops of blood. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And so, uh, this is Jesus' emotional state. This is how he felt. Verse 34, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Again, this is how Jesus felt about what it is that his Father had called or commanded him to do. Greatly distressed and troubled. There's no doubt in my mind, as I mentioned last week, that uh, Jesus' physical body was at this point shaking uncontrollably. Hence the reason an angel is sent to comfort and strengthen him. And yet, verse 42, we read these words, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so, even though he felt the way he felt, what does Jesus do? Does he follow his feelings? Does he listen to his feelings and decide he's not going to go through with what it is that his father had commanded him to do? No. Instead, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And again, this is who we as human beings are to be imitating. We are to be like Jesus in that our lives are not to be an accurate reflection of how we feel. One of the areas I see most often in ministry or with those that I minister to you where this seems to come up the most is in issues related to confrontation. Nobody likes confrontation. In the same way that Jesus didn't like the confrontation that awaited him. Nobody likes those kinds of scenarios. And unfortunately, what I have observed among the people of God is that because of the feelings associated with confrontation, and of course the confrontation that I'm speaking of is necessary confrontation, because of the feelings associated with that, people will choose to bail out or to fail to confront the way they should confront. And often this is uh, the way the exchange goes. I'm aware that this uh, particular confrontation needed to take place, and I say, so did you deal with it? Were you bold? Were you harsh? Did you confront them the way that God commands you to confront them? And uh, oftentimes, unfortunately, the answer that I receive is, well... And uh, you probably know what comes after the, well, some excuse, right? 
Well, I got in there with them or we began to talk and I, I think we got the point across or I think I got the point across. No, were you bold? I wasn't as bold as I could have been. Were you bold at all? Probably not. And if I was to probe further, the answer that I would most likely get uh, is the reason why I wasn't is because I didn't expect when I got into the room with that person that I would feel the way that I felt. You see, it's easy when uh, it's on a piece of paper, right? When it's theoretical. What does God call you to do in this situation? And uh, we all know the answer. Uh, and that uh, would apply to any uh, particular scenario, uh, I would say that most of us would score very high when it comes to uh, our knowledge of what it is that God requires us, or of what God requires us to do. Uh, but oftentimes, it doesn't play out in the actual scenario. Why? Because what's on paper doesn't include the feelings that are included when the actual scenario is taking place. And so what happens is, is we become then the opposite of Jesus. We become an accurate reflection of how we feel. Which means we're not imitating our king. We're not imitating our king. Uh, Jesus uh, deals with this in the person of Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, verse 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are hindering or a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man literally your interests are not the interests of God they are instead the interests of men then Jesus told his disciples if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Notice there it doesn't say he will repay each person according to how they felt. God doesn't care how you feel. Your feelings will never be an excuse. We will be judged according to our actions, regardless of how we felt. And the reason that uh, Jesus uh, brings this up, something that uh, comes up quite often in the Gospels, this, uh, if anyone would come after me, he is to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The reason this comes up again here is uh, because... Peter is clearly not getting the point. 
The reason that Peter says what he does to Jesus, uh, this shall never happen to you, is because uh, Peter is now operating based on how he felt. And Jesus identifies such behavior not with himself. It isn't, get behind me, Peter, you're acting just like me. It's, get behind me, Peter, you're acting just like Satan. Which tells us something about Satan. That Satan acts based on how Satan feels. This is the reason that Satan fell from his high position. Because he acted on how he felt. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, that's the kind of person you cannot be. Instead, you need to be a person who denies that. And as we talked about in our study of this, that is what the term uh, self refers to when used this way. Denying self means denying how you feel as what determines what you do. Like Jesus, like our King, we are not to be an accurate reflection of that. How we feel. It's all for the king until I don't feel like it, and then it's to hell with the king. That unfortunately is true for too many people. And again, Jesus' words of warning for the Son of Man is coming, verse 27 again, in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what they've done, without the excuse of, but I didn't feel like it, I intended to do the right thing, but in that moment, I didn't feel like doing it anymore, and so, you know, I shouldn't be blamed for not doing it. I wanted to do it until I felt different. It was, again, all for the king until I didn't feel like it, and then it was to hell with the king, right? I'm doing what I want. Uh, this, by the way, is uh, a little bit of a, a tangent, what I'm about to say, but I think it's uh, connected to what we're talking about. It is, as it relates to at least the feelings portion. Speaking based on how we feel uh, will lead to acting on how we feel. Uh, important principle to uh, think about. Uh, speaking on how we feel leads to acting on how we feel. That's a, that, that's a danger, at least, that we need to be aware of. Why do I say that? Well, all actions, according to what we learn in God's Word, uh, God's Word is, are, all actions are the result of words. All actions are the result of words. This is the power of words. And we know this power going all the way back to creation itself. God used words to create action in the creation of the universe. Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and God spoke, let there be light. John 1, we see the same thing. All came into being through this existing word. And what is true for God is also true for us as his image bearers or those made in his image. What we speak eventually becomes action. Hence the reason that our brains cannot think without words. 
Hence the reason our ability to think is governed by our vocabulary set. And what we think again is what produces then the action. Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 verse 19. For out of the heart, and as we've talked about before, the mind, what we think, that's what it is referring to here is the heart. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, and then notice, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. All of these actions are the result of thinking and words. Out of the heart, and out of the heart, and to finish that, the mouth speaks. That's what he's referring to here. Out of the heart. The mouth speak, and James chapter 1 tells us what happens those things eventually impregnate us with sin. And it is only a matter of time before uh, that sin with which we have been impregnated uh, becomes action in our lives. James chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 says that uh, the perfect man then is the one who is able to control his speech. If you can control your words, you can control your body. And there again is that connection between uh, speaking and action. Hence the reason freedom of speech. Uh, we as Americans or America uh, takes great pride in that. That we are a nation that uh, uh, protects freedom of speech. But understood from a biblical perspective, freedom of speech is the uh, is not only the first sign of descent away from God, but also the recipe for human destruction. All of that freedom in speaking leads to all kinds of wicked and dark things in action. Because again, actions are the result always of words. Of words. So again, wrapping up this point, Jesus was not an accurate reflection of how he felt and we are to be the same. Our lives are not to be controlled by how we feel. Number 10, Jesus as a human understood the priority of the team. He understood the priority of the team. And that team being the family of God or the church or the covenant community. John 15, we looked at this uh, either last week or the, the week before. John 15 verses 12 and 13 where Jesus gives the command to uh, love one another. And he says, no man has a greater love than this that he would lay down his life for another. And that's team talk. Because that's what teams do, right? They sacrifice for the team. The individual sacrifices for the greater good of the team. Similar team talk can be found in uh, Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 33, and they came to Capernaum and when he, meaning Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest? 
And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be the first, he must be the last of all, and the servant of all. Again, team talk. It's not about the individual. Anytime we're discussing things like who's the greatest among us, that's a, that's a very individualistic kind of conversation. That's not thinking about the team. Again, in chapter 10, Jesus picks this conversation up. Verse 35, or rather, another situation presents itself where Jesus can again address this issue. This time, James and John... James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for this whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on the right hand, on your right hand, and one on your left in your glory. Make us the greatest. What's their focus? Is it the team? Hey, make the team great. No, it's make us, the individual, great. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I have been baptized or I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. Speaking of the death that they also would experience because of following him. But to sit at my right hand or on my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why? Well, because what are they doing? They're not thinking of the team. They're thinking only of themselves. And Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus now speaking of Himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus telling us, or through His words communicating, that for Him it was all about the team. The priority of the team. Jesus could have said, hey, I'm different, I'm the leader. Uh, You're here to serve me. And instead Jesus says, no, even for me, I came not to be served. I came to serve the team. It's all about the team to the point that I'm willing to give everything, my life as a ransom for the team. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 14 and following, Paul here speaks uh, in this way. He says in verse 14, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 
What's his point there? What is he saying? Well, he's saying, look, I, I, even though I had uh, in this particular situation uh, with uh, this particular church, the Corinthians, even though I have the right to require something for my service to you, uh, for the sake of you, for the sake of the team, I have forfeited or sacrificed that. I have instead uh, become a servant, Jesus' words. A servant or slave of all. I've given that up for the good or the sake of the team. For the sake of the team. Hence why uh, Paul says what he does in chapter 1 of this uh, same epistle. A text we all know, chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no division among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You see, that's team language. Unity. No mavericks. No people with their own personal agenda. Everybody on the same page. Everybody working for the agenda and the strategy and the direction and the win for the team. For the team. We see the same language or similar language in Philippians chapter 1. You know the text, verse 27, uh, where Paul uh, speaks this way as uh, the means to letting our lives be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. How do we do that? Verse 27, we do that by striving side by side with one mind. Verse 2 of chapter 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And again, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, team language. We can't win for the king unless the church operates as a team. What does that look like according to what we just read? Well, again, personal agendas are gone. Saying, well, that's what some people in the church believe, but that's not actually my position on the issue. We live and are willing to give anything to be aligned with the teaching, the direction, the strategy of the team. It means also, as we saw, John 15, we are even willing to die or suffer for the sake of the team. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. The same text where Paul is uh, exhorting them to walk in a manner worthy, which means uh, to walk as a team, to function in this gospel fight as a team. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed now, or so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of, in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out in this process him ministering to them unto their obedience, that they be blameless. All of these things that he's just said. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Notice Paul's response. I am glad and rejoice with you all. 
Paul says, if it kills me to get you there, I'm okay with that. As a matter of fact, I am glad and I rejoice. I'm spending my life for the team. Paul understood that to win, the team needed to win. Not just the individual, the team. Paul lived for the team. Again, why? Because there is no win without the team operating as a team. I've only watched uh, one episode. Some of you have watched uh, the entire series uh, called The Man in the Arena. That first episode, which uh, goes through really Tom Brady's uh, first Super Bowl, Willie McGinnis is the, uh, I would call him the main speaker uh, in that particular episode. And uh, one of the things that he says applies to what we're talking about here now. Their first coach was Bill Parcells, and uh, McGinnis was becoming a star player on the team. There were other star players, but uh, they couldn't, uh, they still couldn't produce a winning record under Parcells. And uh, Bill Belichick uh, comes in, takes uh, Parcells' place, and uh, McGinnis says something to this effect. We finally understood what it meant to be a team. It wasn't about the individual anymore. It was about the team. And because we functioned now as a team, we began to win as a team. And they did more than just win as a team. They went to the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl as a team. As a team. The principle, or this principle, is at the center of all team sports. It's also at the center of all military action. Winning and losing are the vast majority of the time determined by how well the group did in operating as a team. And the uh, statistics are there to prove it. It's not so much that you had uh, the superior plan. You see, that's, uh, I think, what we get caught up in a lot of times. Well, is, it, is this exactly the best pan, uh, plan? I think my plan is better and we should have gone that direction, uh, but the team chose to go this direction. The numbers show that uh, often what determines a win or loss has not that much to do with the plan itself but that everybody on the team was committed to the plan, was committed to the team. This is Ecclesiastes uh, 4.12, by the way. The cord of uh, three strands is not easily broken. Uh, three strands working together, in unity together. That's team talk. That's team philosophy. And Jesus, again, was committed to that. Jesus practiced the priority of the team. Jesus gave his life for the team. Jesus knew there was no win without the team. The secret to the early church's global impact was not their size, they were small in numbers, but their unity, their operation as a team. Rogue or maverick elements were not tolerated. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 25, the account of Simon Magus is a good example of this. This individual hears the preaching of uh, Philip, and uh, uh, he is baptized. And uh, when Peter and John come down after hearing that uh, individuals have come to the faith, they come down there uh, sometime later, and they are ordaining men into ministry. And uh, Simon uh, has his own agenda in this. 
And so he attempts to buy some of that anointing. He's thinking again only of himself and he is removed from that body because of such thinking. The writings of the early church fathers also reflect this. Most were written uh, to maintain orthodoxy among all churches. To make sure that everybody was on the same page. That everybody was on the same team. That everybody had the same teaching. The same beliefs. The same direction. The same strategy. Hence why uh, we read uh, words such as this in Romans in Romans chapter 16, uh, verses 17 and 18. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. You see, that's not a team player. Somebody who creates division in the team who creates obstacles to the strategy that has been given to the team, to the teaching, to the doctrine that's been given to the team. Paul says, watch out for such individuals. And avoid these individuals, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of of the naive. By the way, you see that word Christ there, and uh, I told you this uh, some weeks back, but uh, this is what's uh, really uh, changed my thinking. This is why uh, we, we've got all the king's speech now. Because that term Christ, and every time you see that, just like when you see the word uh, love, you think of loyalty. When you see that word Christ, you should see the word king, because that's what that word means. They do not serve our king, uh, Paul says, those who do this. Why do they not serve the king? Uh, Because they do not serve the team. If you do not serve the team, you do not serve the king. And again, the king himself is our example of this. He understood the priority of the team. If we're going to win, beloved, as a congregation, if we're going to win people to Christ, then we must be unified as a team. We must work as a team. We must be a team. Number 11. As a human, or during his... uh, Humanity on earth, this is not to assume that he operates somehow different now. He's still human, but as a human or during his humanity, Jesus submitted to God or God's word as the author of morality, not consensus, circumstance, or the individual. Jesus submitted to God or God's word as the author of morality, what determines right and wrong righteousness and wickedness. Jesus submitted to God as the author of morality, not consensus. By consensus I mean what the majority of people think. That's consensus. Circumstance, I think that's pretty self-explanatory as well as the idea of the individual. A good example of this where we see all three is... uh, Jesus' conversation concerning divorce in Matthew chapter 19. 
Matthew chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This first portion of this conversation is related to this piece on consensus. The reason why these individuals, these Pharisees, are asking him this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any causes? Because uh, that was uh, the popular view of the day. We know that the majority of people at the time of Christ held that it was indeed okay to divorce your wife for any cause. And so this was the position of consensus. Jesus' response, however, shows that consensus was, was, uh, was not what determined morality for him. Instead, it was God. Or more specifically, God's Word. Have you not read? And he is, of course, quoting there from uh, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Continuing on in this particular conversation, verses 7 and 8, they said to him then in response, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Notice Jesus' response. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, from God, he who was in the beginning, from the beginning it was not so. Here we have the example of uh, circumstance circumstance. And so uh, they're appealing to that, right? Because of the circumstance, and Jesus puts his finger on that circumstance, hardness of heart, yeah, Moses allowed for it. But that's not, or he's not, the one that determines morality. Who again determines morality? God determines morality. And it was not this way from the beginning, or from the beginning, it was not so. God trumps circumstance. God trumps circumstance. Or the individual. In this case, uh, the spiritual leader Moses. God trumps Moses. Verses then 9 through 12 And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, if that's the only reason we can ever divorce our wives, then it'd be better not to get married at all. Notice Jesus' response, but he said to him, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. 
And here's our example of uh, the individual. God trumping the desire of the individual. As it relates to uh, these particular disciples, their desire is that uh, uh, marriage uh, or divorce, rather, uh, would uh, have a broader scope of acceptability. And upon hearing what Jesus says, they say, "Uh, well, then it's better not marry. We won't marry if that's the case. And notice again, Jesus doesn't respond by saying, oh, well, wait a minute, I didn't know that. You want, to, uh, you want more exceptions? Then there'll be more exceptions. The desire of the individual, what the individual or these individuals wanted in this case, doesn't change morality for Jesus. Again, Jesus goes back to what it is that God has said. God is the author of morality even when it stings the individual as it was uh, these individuals here. If such is the case, it is better not to marry. If you understand Jesus' uh, response there in verse 12, it's, uh, it's a little comical. He brings up the issue of uh, eunuchs. That's essentially uh, men uh, w- with... Uh, certain either deformities or things that have been done to them to their male parts such that they no longer have sexual feelings or desires. It's what we do to our dogs and our cats so they don't run around looking for a mate. And Jesus says here in that final piece there, there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. What's Jesus essentially saying there? Well, he's saying this. Uh, he's saying, look, if you can't handle it, uh, then uh, maybe you ought to go out and get emasculated. If you can't keep your sexual desires in check, and yet uh, the only place, the only context where uh, uh, you can uh, have that and it be acceptable before God is this particular context, which means you'll be with her and, uh, until uh, she commits uh, sexual immorality. That's the only way you can get out of that situation. And, uh, and he says, and if you can't deal with that, you don't like that, then uh, maybe you ought to just cut your junk off. Be a eunuch. You see, the individual or the desire of the individual or what that's going to mean to the individual or how hard it may be, doesn't change morality it didn't for Jesus it shouldn't for us God is the author of morality not consensus not circumstance or the desire of the individual a good example of uh, these three uh, going uh, or or rather truth being determined by these three is uh, our nation America our nation's uh, downward spiral with respect to who determines morality You can see it or examples of this in each of these three categories. Uh, The first, consensus. A good example here is uh, homosexuality as acceptable now, as an acceptable sexual orientation. I don't know how many people know this, but uh, uh, homosexuality has for the longest time within the so-called scientific community, I'm speaking about uh, psychology, has been considered a deviant or perverted a form of behavior associated with mental illness. That's what it was up until the DSM-5, where because of consensus, because there were enough people who now saw it as a healthy, acceptable lifestyle, it's now changed and is no longer considered a mental illness. 
We were just having a conversation about this last night, and I said, isn't it funny, psychology wants to be considered real science or real medicine, and yet I can't think of one disease in medicine uh, that has gone from being a disease to something that is healthy without the empirical data to show that it's healthy. I can't think of one disease that is no longer considered a disease because the majority of people decided it wasn't a disease. And so uh, this particular very moral issue now is acceptable. Why is it acceptable? Because consensus says that it's acceptable. As it relates to circumstances, this is one that uh, I talked about during our Q&A, uh, the juvenile justice system meaning giving uh, different punishments or judgments uh, to uh, those that we now uh, call minors. We make a distinction in this country between uh, adults and minors. Well, it wasn't always that way. For the majority of our history, it has not been that way. Before 1899, all children at any age were considered uh, small adults and were judged as adults. It wasn't until 1899, in the middle of mass immigration, and the result of all of this immigration into the United States, you had uh, lots of indigent, indigent children running in the streets and committing serious crimes, that the law then changed. Circumstance. People didn't like seeing children, who before that time were few and far between as it related to committing serious crimes. People didn't like seeing all these children who had committed serious crimes, and before that would have been judged as adults, uh, now being judged in that way. They felt that it was too harsh. And because of the mass, so because of the mass immigration and all of these children in the streets, people coming here, not having jobs, their kids going out, stealing things, doing things, uh, because of that, because of the circumstance, the law changed. It changed because of circumstance. So again, who's the author of morality? Well, for America, consensus or circumstance or as we've now witnessed in our time, uh, the individual. And the perfect example of that is gender identity. You determine what gender you are. And that can change based on the day of the week. The individual now is determining uh, those things. Not for Jesus, and not for those who follow Jesus to the law and to the testimony, Isaiah 8.20, if they do not speak according to this, the law and the testimony being God's word, then it is because they have no dawn. They are in the dark. The final point in our series, no, excuse me, two more, uh, number 12, Jesus, during his uh, humanity, offended others or his earthly life, offended others by his knowledge and the words he used. He offended others by his knowledge and the words he used. Matthew 13 is the text that uh, gives us the first of these, people being offended by his knowledge. Matthew 13, uh, verses uh, 53 through 58 it says that when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there 
And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Where did he get this, uh, this wisdom, this knowledge? Is this not the carpenter's son, and is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Why are they bringing up the family? They're saying, we know his family, and uh, they're not like him. Right? Where did this man get all these things? And notice verse 57, and they took offense at him. Verse 58, and he did not do many mighty works there because of this offense, because of their unbelief. They took offense at him. Why did they take offense? They took offense because of his knowledge. This is, according to other places in Scripture, uh, the number one reason for insurrection. What causes people to uh, rebel against their leaders is often because they're jealous of their leader's knowledge. Uh, We see this uh, in uh, Matthew 27, verse 18, as it relates to Jesus. So uh, this idea uh, carried now forward and uh, into Matthew's gospel, and Matthew commenting then on this uh, very issue in verse 18, for he knew, Jesus knew, that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And uh, by delivering up, it means to his death. Jesus knew the reason was is that they were, they were jealous of him. They were jealous of his knowledge. They didn't like it, so he had to go. We see this in uh, Psalm 106, Psalm 106, verse 16. Uh, This is the reason, or was the reason for uh, Korah's rebellion when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord. Insurrection, often the result of envy or jealousy of a person's knowledge. But people didn't just take offense at what he knew, but also by what he said. Matthew 15, going back to Matthew's Gospel, verses 1 through 4, just a little bit later, we read these words. And Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? He answered them, And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded on your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, uh, what, would you have, uh, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. For the sake of your traditions, then, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this thing? That's why I read the the longer portion there just before, so you'd understand what they're talking about. It's what Jesus said in response to the traditions of the elders. 
Jesus confronts them. And again, notice uh, the words, you hypocrites. For the sake of your tradition, you make void the word of God. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In response to his disciples making him aware of that, notice also how he responds. Verse 13, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into So notice he includes here, as part of his offensive words, the use of what we might call colorful language when the occasion called for it, which in this case it did. What do I mean by colorful language? Well, that stuff I've already mentioned. Hypocrites, blind guides. Other examples, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, he uses the phrase brood of vipers. Now, we read all of that, hypocrites, blind guides, brood vipers, and uh, we probably don't think much of it, but uh, all of these are the equivalent of our modern-day swear words. And they would have had uh, a similar or the same effect. When the occasion calls for such words, when less colorful words prove ineffective, we have this uh, goofy wives' tale taboo within Christianity that uh, Christians don't speak that way. Well, I don't know about you, but for me to be a Christian means I follow King Jesus, and Jesus, King Jesus, used very colorful language when the occasion called for it. So here maybe is the bigger question. Why? Why did Jesus say hard or offensive things? Let me give you three reasons. One that uh, we've already somewhat talked about, but here's the first. He refused to lie about or to people. He refused to lie about or to people. And we see that, I believe, here in Matthew 15. Jesus, in calling them these names, is not slandering them. He's telling them exactly what they are, just using colorful terms to do it to make his point. And uh, anytime uh, we don't speak truth to people, even when that truth is harsh or hard to hear, we are lying to them. And according to Proverbs 27.6, that's not what we're called to do. That's what the enemy does. The enemy multiplies kisses. But the bruises of a brother can be trusted. A second reason why Jesus said hard or offensive things is because he knew that the uncomfortableness that comes with such speech is not a valid excuse or optional to getting to heaven. And uh, this goes back uh, to what we talked about earlier as it relates to being uncomfortable and our lives not reflecting how we feel. That when we get into those situations, as Jesus is in one of these situations now, an uncomfortable setting, no doubt, even for him. A setting filled with confrontation. Well, Jesus knew that just because he felt uncomfortable, that didn't give him an excuse before God. He knew that he was still required to speak tough words. 
tough words, and in this case, put in colorful language. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 speaks to this as it relates to uh, getting into heaven, and that's why I've tacked that on there as well. He knew that the uncomfortableness that comes with such speech is not a valid excuse or optional to getting to heaven. Uh, I think that we have this idea that, well, uh, I I, I see, and, and maybe this is the first time you've really considered this as it relates to Jesus. You say, well, I see he speaks that way, but that's not just me. I don't think I need to do that. And yet, Again, Jesus would disagree with you. Not only are we to imitate Jesus in all ways, including this way, uh, but this is not optional. It is necessary to getting to heaven. Matthew chapter 10. So have no fear of them. And uh, here he is uh, talking about those that uh, will hate you because of your words, because of your following of King Jesus. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the, roo- on the housetops. Ephesians 5 says we are to expose the deeds of darkness, and Jesus is saying you're going to do that, and, and, and even if it's just whispered, you're going to proclaim it loudly. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Already he's inferring what? If you, if you don't speak this way, what's going to happen? If you don't speak this way because you're fearful of what others might think or how offended they might be with you, you're fearing the wrong thing or the wrong persons. You need to fear what's going to happen to you from God if you don't. And that is really where he draws his conclusion then in verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, in this context, what does it look like to acknowledge him before men? To say the tough things. I will also acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, in this context, what does it mean to deny him? To refuse to speak the tough things. And again, because of the way it makes you feel or because you're worried about how others are going to take it, or that they might be offended with you. Anyone who does that, I will also, Jesus says, deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus knew that. He knew that this kind of language, again, was necessary to follow God. The third reason, he cared more about making God happy than men. He cared more about making God happy than men. And and let me just add this to the end. He he knew that he could not please both and still get to heaven. He could not please both and get to heaven. And I think that that's a problem, right, as humans. We're we're like, well, maybe there's a way I can do both. And uh, for those of you who have attempted to practice that over the years, I've had uh, the pleasure or the displeasure, is probably a a better way of putting it, of watching you fail at that. And so when you're with us, you, you speak in a way that's strong, and then when you get with family or friends, uh, you flake out. And it's because you're trying to please both sides, God's people or God and uh, the people of the world. And it doesn't work. You can't make both sides happy. As a matter of fact, you will fail in relation to both. You have, in the words of Jesus from Luke 14, lost now your saltiness and are good only for one thing, the manure pile. 
Jesus had no concern uh, for making men happy, only God, only God, John 4.34, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. John 8.29, I do the things that are pleasing to the Father. John 10.17, for this reason the Father loves the Son, because I lay down my life. I do what he has commanded me to do. That's why God loves me. Luke 6.26, in contrast, Woe to you if all men speak well of you, for so they did to the false prophets. In relation to us, James chapter 4, verse 4, anyone who is a friend of the world is not a friend of God. 2 Timothy 4, 2, for this reason we're told to, or preachers are told to, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience. Jesus said the hard and offensive things. Uh, This is our king. And people, again, uh, were offended by those offensive words. And Jesus made no apology because when he spoke those words, it was because that's what the occasion required. The final point then, number 13. uh, Jesus was not wooed away from heaven by the pleasures of this world. Jesus was not wooed away from heaven by the pleasures of this world. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. As part of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, we're told that the devil takes him up on a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And if you're really going to appreciate what's said here, you, you need to give a little time to think about what it is that Jesus would have seen, not just the kingdoms, but notice, and their glory. All of the finer things, right? All of the pleasures that this world has to offer. Maybe that's a better way of of putting what it is that uh, Satan or the devil showed him. All the kingdoms of the world, all the glory that was available to him, if, verse 9, the devil says, all these things I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you worship. But Jesus uh, turns it down. There's no reason to believe that uh, Satan couldn't give him those things. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 5.19, it says that he is the ruler of this world. And yet Jesus uh, doesn't think twice about that. Right? He sees all the pleasures that the world has to offer, and Satan says, it's all yours. You can have all of it. You can experience all of it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we're told that Jesus was tempted in all the same ways that we are, and yet he was without sin. And Jesus, after coming uh, down off the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, is uh, met by a man and his son who has, uh, who's an epileptic, and uh, Jesus says these words, How long must I put up with you? Uh, clearly, Jesus wasn't longing to indulge in the pleasures of this world. Jesus was completely immune 
to being wooed away by the pleasures of this world. Even when that meant gaining the entire world. And I think this, beloved, is what that indicates to us. It indicates to us just how large the disparity is between the value or the quality or the beauty of this world and heaven. Why do I say that? Because Jesus knew firsthand what heaven was like. He'd already been there. And so here, through the actions of Jesus, through the responses of Jesus, through the complete inability for him to be wooed away by these things, pleasures at a level that none of us in this room have ever experienced. And yet again, Jesus didn't think twice. I think that that is an accurate indication of just how large that disparity is, the comparison between the quality and the nature of this world in all of its pleasures versus the quality and the nature of heaven or the world to come. A place, again, that uh, Jesus had already been. He knew what that place was like. And in comparison, there was no comparison. And I think that that's something we need to think about, right? Jesus didn't have any problem because he, he knew what was there. And in comparison to this, are you kidding me? By the way, the same was true for Paul. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, he too had been to the third heaven. We're told that there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. He had seen heaven. He, he's told, as a matter of fact, he tells us there in that epistle, he says he was commanded not to speak of certain things that he saw there, things too wonderful. Paul had been there to heaven, and uh, as a result, this is his comparison uh, back in uh, chapter 4 of that same epistle. Chapter 4, uh, verse 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The disparity, the distance between the two, there's no comparison. There's no way to compare them because they're so, so different. No comparison. And so whatever we think is attractive or beautiful or desirable in this life, its comparison to heaven is no comparison. In other words, it would be silly to compare those two things because of how far off they are as it relates to the issues of, of beauty and pleasure and value. And so, of course, Jesus wasn't wooed away by the pleasures of this world. Only a fool would trade paradise for the podunk thrills of this world. But is that your mindset? Do you think that way? Do you understand that our king, our king who, again, was in heaven, was not at all moved by the things of this world? The temptations of this world were a drop in the bucket to him because of what he knew heaven to be like. He knew what he'd be losing and uh, there was nothing in this world that was worth that. Closing then contemplation. Closing contemplation. God saved us to make us imitators of our king. What we have learned therefore is to be modeled in our lives. It isn't athletes or movie stars. It isn't these kinds of people that we're to be modeling ourselves after. Rather, we're to be modeling our lives, our behaviors, our responses, the things that we focus on, the things that we think about. As it relates to heaven, we are to, according to Colossians 3, set our mind on the things above where Jesus is. We're to be thinking about 
how much more beautiful, how much better that place will be than this place. And we can't have both. We're to use the beauty of this world to inspire us to that place. To say, if my heart can go pitter-patter for that, what's it going to be like in that place? We're to use Jesus as our model in all of these ways, in the ways that we live our life. Not the people of this world. It's Jesus that we are to imitate. When people see how we act or the things uh, we are concerned about or how we speak, it should reflect our King. And so in light of that, two final thoughts. If what we have covered is not the Jesus you know, and you really need to, I think, uh, to be... uh, fair to the material, again, go back this week, I would encourage you to write these things down and take the time before you read your Bibles to just look at it and to ask this question, is this the Jesus that you've known all these years? If it's not, then understand, then understand the Jesus you know is not the King. Because what we've been talking about is the King. And number two, if who your life reminds others of not what you tell yourself. It means going to others and say, who do I remind you of? If it's not King Jesus, good luck getting to heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can talk about your son, our king, and I pray that through this study we have uh, realized that this needs to be our focus This is how we attain to the prize. We do it through King Jesus by making sure that our lives here on earth are lived in the way that he lived his life. Make it so, I pray, in our King's most glorious name, in Jesus' name, amen.